You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. I don't know if you're anything like me at all, but there are times when I'm in between projects or I'm in between some activity and my mind sort of just goes on idle, which is never a good place for this brain to go. Because when it goes on idle, inevitably and immediately, it kicks back into this gear that is all about regret. There's just something in my psyche that I'm sure I could spend hours on a therapist's couch, but when I have some idle time, something in me starts to recall all of the dumb things that I've done. Just all the tremendous errors, all the fabulous failures. And I think, ah, oh gosh, I can't believe I did. I can't believe I'm the kind of person who did. And like three rooms away, my wife will hear me groaning audibly. And she'll be like, stop it, forgiveness, it's over. Still groaning, still totally like, I'm so, I can't believe I've done that. And the reality is, I, uh, I do that a lot, and uh, I have a lot of those things to be mindful of. But one of the things I'm thankful for that early on in my marriage, my wife Susan and I sort of made a, a deal with one another that if we ever engaged in any sort of marital covenantal conflict, that's the sanitized way of saying fight, if we ever got in any sort of thing like that, we would never leave the house in a fight because we always thought how tragic and terrible it would be that if I said something hurtful and harmful and foolish and then she went out and something horrible happened in an accident or something, that that would be the thing that I carried for the rest of my life. And that that regret would be unending and it would compound and it would be an absolute devastation or vice versa. If, you know, in the one time ever she said something that was harmful, that then I left the house and something happened to me, well, We don't ever want to do that. Well, this morning, we get to look at, I think, the Grand Mount Everest case study of regret, of the saddest thing that I think may have ever, ever occurred. And we get to watch the risen Lord Jesus make the saddest thing ever come untrue, which I think brings immediate hope and help to every single one of us. It's going to lead us to our big idea for the morning as we go to the Gospel of John. Our big idea for this morning is this. There is no failure too far. There is no failure too far. Now, we're in the Gospel of John, and we've been studying through the Gospel of John since September of last year. And so at long last, we come to John 21, the final chapter, the final message in our series on the Gospel of John. There is no failure too far. I think this is incredibly important because John writes his gospel very definitively, very clearly, so that his readers, immediately you and I, will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But having read and having believed, now what and so what? How do I actually get that into my life? How do I bring that to bear personally and practically on a daily living? That's why we have chapter 21. Now, the existence of chapter 21 of the Gospel of John has vexed people for centuries because it seems pretty clear and apparent that at the end of chapter 20, 
John gives his concluding thesis. I'm writing this so that you will believe, and that should be it. But then we get chapter 21. Now, we are pretty confident that John is the author of John 21, but that he added it a little bit later on. We don't know how much later on, and it doesn't matter. There was a stretch of time when people thought, well, maybe somebody else wrote it, maybe somebody, uh, another disciple, but pretty much nobody believes that anymore. There are no manuscripts floating around that do not include John 21. In other words, there's never been a time when the church did not believe foundationally that John 21 was inspired, authoritative, and sufficient as part of God's Word. So I I say all that so that you and I can have confidence. It is, we think, added a little bit later on as an epilogue, as an afterword. Now, why does John do this? Well, because John is a literary master. He also includes what we call the prologue. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, we have this great grand introduction that you've slept since then. Way back in September, we talked about that Jesus is the Logos. It is like he is all gravity and light and power and heat in the cosmos incarnate. It's him. He is the Logos. He is God incarnate. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's prologue. And so John also includes an epilogue. He's taken 20 chapters to sort of, in a teaching arrangement, defend and justify the fact that Jesus is the Christ. 20 chapters, he's laid out his content and his argument to say, this is who Jesus is. But chapter 21 is the narrative It's the illustration of, since that's true, how does that work itself out in an individual's life? That's John 21. So if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John 21. We're going to walk through this chapter. We're going to finish our series in the Gospel of John, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us. I want to remind you, there is no failure too far. Now, I'll just tell you transparently and pastorally as I've thought about this week and thought about this big idea this notion it has occurred to me to destruct me that I'm not the only one with failures in my in my past in my history I know that I'm not and so even now perhaps there is a thing that your conscience there is a thing that your mind or your heart or your soul brings up that you think oh yeah that just want you to know, if you're a Christian, that is not of the Spirit. Jesus came to set the captives free, and not to set them free from Rome or any other opposing regime or invading army, but to set them free from their own sin and death. And so whatever failure comes up that makes you want to groan audibly, that you think, ugh, I'm damaged goods, will you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that every single person in this room has potholes in their path of our own making and our enemy accuses us day and night wanting us to believe that those things have disqualified and derailed us. But I thank you. I thank you for this word that tells us again and again there is no failure too far. There is no sin that is beyond your grace. And so would you speak by your spirit, through your word, among your people? Would you touch us? Would you teach us? Would you indeed transform us that we would walk out of here different, a people free? So I pray this, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, I'll confess, it's a little bit nostalgic and euphoric to have been in this book for these many months and now to come to the final chapter. So, John 21, verse 1. After this, after what? Well, last Sunday was Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and we walked through John chapter 20 and the resurrection of Jesus, that he is alive, and that by definition changes everything. And that Jesus appears, he manifests himself to the disciples twice in Jerusalem. After these things, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. He manifested, he appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. This is John using the Roman name of the Sea of Galilee to his predominantly Ephesian readers in the city of Ephesus, which was in the western side of modern-day Turkey. An angel had come to the disciples and said, go on ahead, meet Jesus in Galilee. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but the thought is that this is intentional, this is on purpose, to prepare the disciples for what's going to come next. They were in Jerusalem. It wasn't their home. But Jerusalem was the center of Judaism and Jewish influence. But this angel says, I want you to go to Galilee. Galilee is primarily influenced by Gentiles. It's where the Decapolis cities had a lot of influence from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. The thought is that the disciples are now going to go north to the Galilee and they will begin pursuing Gentiles to invite them into this new kingdom that Christ is inaugurating. So go to the Sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. He manifested, he appeared himself and this is how that went. Here's John's epilogue. Simon Peter... Thomas, called the twin, probably the twin of Matthew, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. So there's seven disciples together up in the Galilee. We don't know where the other four are, we're not told. We know what happened to Judas, but there's seven disciples gathered. There's Peter, of course, there's Thomas, the twin, there's Nathaniel, there's the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then there's my other brother Daryl and my other brother Daryl. Like, why, John? Why do these guys not get named? 2,000 years, we don't know. It's just Daryl and Daryl. I don't know, but I'm sure they're going, for realsies, you couldn't took three more pen strokes and tell them who we are. No, they're unnamed guys. So we got these seven people. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. It wasn't that that was just his hobby and he needed something to do. For three plus years, Peter has been vocationally absent. Now, we know that Peter was married, which means he more than likely had a family. And I don't know how their family had been supplied or had been uh, uh, fed and taken care of, but now they're back in Galilee. Peter's got a family. I'm going fishing. And despite what has happened with Peter, he still has some leadership sway. Or maybe he's just the biggest guy, or maybe he's the older one. We don't know, but he says, I'm going fishing. The thing that he knows to do up on the Sea of Galilee is to fish. Now, there's something that we have to understand. When we read John's gospel, John absolutely expects and anticipates that we will have also read the other gospel accounts. When John writes his gospel in the mid-80s A.D., he assumes that we've already read the other gospel accounts, certainly by Matthew and Luke, that have made their way around through the churches at this time. So 
John's going to tell us some things that are hearkening to other gospel accounts that John does not take the space to write. For example, John doesn't bother to tell us about the birth of Jesus. He leaves that to Luke and to Matthew. John doesn't bother to tell us about the calling of the disciples. He leaves that to Luke in chapter 5. So what we have here is Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. Now we know that Peter was a fisherman. We don't know that Nathaniel was. He's from Cana, which is pretty inland. It would be odd for him to have been a fisherman. We know that James and John were fishermen. They worked for their father, Zebedee. We have no idea about Daryl and Daryl, okay? They may have been fishermen. They may not have been. We don't know. We've got these seven guys. At least three of them are seasoned professional fishermen. We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So in antiquity, on the Sea of Galilee, fishermen fish at night. It's cooler, for starters, and apparently that's also when the fish run is at night, not during the daytime. And they're out in their boat with their nets, and they catch nothing. Kill me, dig me up, kill me again. I think that must be the worst thing ever, to go fishing and catch nothing. Like, there can't possibly be anything more boring than going fishing and nothing happened. It's like knitting while holding your breath. It has to be. And these guys are professional fishermen, and nothing's happening. All night long, they catch nothing. Why? Because we're about to learn a very important lesson. Because <laughs> Jesus isn't with them. And they're trying to do this in their own strength. And I'll tell you, as I read this passage this whole week in preparation, boy, that's convicting. If you've ever tried to give the gospel, if you've ever tried to preach, if you've ever tried to teach, if you've ever tried to love and lead and guide and guard God's people apart from Christ, and you just watch as the soundtrack plays, wah, 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 you catch nothing apart from Christ. What does he say in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are resisting my help, you will have none. If you are resting in your own strength, you will have none. And so these professional fishermen go out and do what they know to do, and they catch nothing. It is a horrible experience for them, especially in light of all that's gone on and the confusion, the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt. They're not catching anything. Verse 4, just as day was breaking. I love this. See, John's a literary master. He always is going to contrast night and day, light and dark. It is dark and they're fishing and nothing's happening. And the sun bursts forth. The dawn comes. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. We know later on that they're about 100 yards off. It's dark. The sun is just coming up over the mountains in the east. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, this is a kind of a weird translation. It's, it's lads or boys. Boys, y'all caught anything? The most vexing question ever to a failing fisherman. By the way, no fisherman's ever going to tell the truth here, ever, ever. Either you're killing it and you don't want anyone else to know, so you're going to lie. Or you're doing a terrible job catching nothing and your ego's going to get in the way and you're going to lie. So they, they, this is a loaded question, but at least they're honest, and I love their answer. He says, hey, lads, hey, boys, have y'all caught anything? They simply answer, no. No explanation, no excuse, just no, nothing. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, instantly, 
our ears are supposed to go bing. We've heard this before. John hopes and expects that we will have read the Gospel of Luke, where in chapter 5, Jesus calls his disciples for the first time. It's the exact same scenario. They're fishing. They're catching nothing. Jesus comes up and says, hey, how's the catch? They say, not so good. He says, throw your nets on the other side. And there's so much fish that the nets begin to tear. We're supposed to have that in mind. The disciples certainly begin to understand because they don't question. These are professional fishermen. And this Yehu on the, on the shore just told them to fish in a completely unconventional way. See, in that part of the Sea of Galilee is an area called Tabga. You can go there today. You can actually wade out into the water, and you can feel these springs of water that are draining into the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And where those springs drain in, that brings rich nutrients. And so the fish of the northern part of the lake, that's where they all gather. And so a fisherman knows to point his boat parallel to the shore, and so the boat essentially becomes sort of a blockade to keep the fish from swimming into open water. There's the shore. Here's the boat. You cast your nets on the left side of the boat. That's where you make your haul. But nothing is happening. And so this guy on the shore says, throw your nets to open water, to deep, cold water. That's never going to work. That's foolishness. But what else are they going to do? Nothing's been working so far. We'll give it a shot. Sure enough. So they cast their net, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. This is a miraculous provision. By the way, so was their failure. Their inability to catch anything apart from Jesus was also a part of his provision. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John wants to make sure you remember that he was kind of rabbi's pet, okay? That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. He recognizes, I've seen this before. This has happened to us before, Peter. It's Jesus. He's here. He has come. Last time we saw him, we were up in Galilee, or in, down in Jerusalem. Now he has come here. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, <laughs> this is one of the greatest verses in the whole of the New Testament. He put on his outer garment. Because when you go swimming, you throw on a terry cloth robe, don't you? I mean, you're going to jump in a lake. You're going to throw on your outer garments. No, most people take that off. Well, Peter's already done that. For he was stripped for work. That's a sweet sanitized word for church and Bible translation. No, he was gumnas for work. He was as naked as the day he was born. He's gumnas fishing, y'all. That's a little bit weird to us. No wonder Daryl and Daryl were like, we're not going to catch anything while that's going on. He put on his outer garment because he was uncovered. There is a sense in which Peter is carrying an immense amount of shame and regret still. And so, just like Adam and Eve in the garden who feel like they have to cover themselves before God, Peter has to cover himself and he jumps in the water. Why? Why does Peter do this? Well, the Gospel of Luke tells us a lot more detail about Peter's denial than John's Gospel. John tells us, yes, that Peter denies Christ, but Luke gives us the actual verbiage that Peter utters, and it's heartrending. The Gospel of Luke tells us that as Peter goes into the courtyard, he says with specificity and precision, I do not know that man. It's not just I don't know the man, it's I don't know that man. 
points directly to Jesus, I do not know him. The second time Peter says, I swear to God, I do not know that man. And the third time, Luke tells us that Peter, anathema. He calls down curse on himself. And what he essentially says is, I do not know that man, and if I'm lying, may God darn me to heck. I'll clean that up. And then Jesus died. And the last thing that the apostle Peter says that his Lord hears is, I do not know, and if I'm lying, may he damn me to heck. And with that, Peter has to live days and days because Jesus died. Now, Jesus has been raised again. He's alive. And Jesus appeared to the disciples twice in Jerusalem, but we have no recorded words between Peter and Jesus. Jesus lets it linger. He waits for a season before he addresses Peter. And so Peter has to sit with this incredible regret that must have tormented his mind. This is just days. But when Peter hears that it's Jesus on the shore, John calls it out. Peter covers up and it says he throws himself. into. This is not a nice elegant dive off of the boat. This is an octopus falling out of a tree kind of emotion. He just, and he's in the water, and he's wrapped in something heavy, and somehow he flounders his way, and he gets to the shore with as much energy and enthusiasm as he can possibly muster. He put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Then John makes sure to tell us, thanks, Peter, we'll get the fish, don't worry about it. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. That's okay, Peter, we'll get it. No, no you go ahead and flop through the, through the sea there, we'll get this. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now, there are only two places in your entire Bible where you're going to see the expression, a charcoal fire. One is here in John 21, and the other one is in John 18. It is the same charcoal fire that Peter warms himself by as he is denying Jesus. And John masterfully gives us these sensory bookends in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us to understand that Peter probably still has the the smell of smoke in his nostrils from that charcoal fire of where he denied his Lord. And now Jesus sets up a charcoal fire on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee with fish laid out on it and bread. That's beautiful. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. <laughs> they didn't catch anything. They had caught nothing all night, but this is amazing. This is preparatory for us to understand Jesus does the work, but he honors the work of our hands. He, he dignifies the disciples. Bring some of the fish that you have caught. By the way, you had nothing until I showed up. But since you did it, Bring some of the fish that you have. Does Jesus need their help with more fish? No, clearly he somehow produced his own. It's already cooking on the fire. But he dignifies and ennobles these disciples. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter hears this. He goes on the boat now and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, I will tell you, I have read, I can't tell you how many articles and commentaries on why there are 153 fish. And here's the answer. Mm -hmm. 
because 154 is too many and 152 is not enough. This is a historical detail of an eyewitness. I have a tour guide when we go to Israel named Ronan. He's awesome. And he likes to tell me that's because there are 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And every one of those fish is a different kind of fish. That's awesome. Except that there's not 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee and there never has been. Well, he'll say it's also because there's 153 nations in the world. Carry the one. No, there's not. And there pretty much hasn't been. So we don't know. Well, 153 because it's the number of perfection, carry the one minus the prime circumference of a moose. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why there's 153 fish and they're large. It's a historical eyewitness detail account. Here's what I think happened. I think Peter hears Jesus say, bring the fish. And Peter says, oh yeah. And he jumps on the boat and he grabs the net and he hulks this thing. And goes, Man, that's heavy. There must be like 150 fish in there. And Thomas goes, oh, I doubt that. I'll count them. And so Thomas sits down and he, well, there's onesie, there's two. See, because it's common practice that fishermen split up the catch evenly and they split the proceeds. I think Thomas wants to know exactly what his cut's going to be because that's my boy doubting Thomas. 153 fish. I don't think there's any more significance than that. And although there were so many large fish, the net was not torn. Now that is a significant detail because in the Luke 5 account of the first calling of Jesus' disciples, the nets tear. But something's different now. The resurrection has occurred. The place has been prepared in Christ. He is alive. He was alive. He died. He was buried. He rose again. The place is prepared. This time they are going to be equipped. The net does not tear. Jesus had told Peter in Luke 5, I will make you fishers of men. This is preparatory. This time the nets will not tear. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. <laughs> I, this is one of my favorite verses. Come and have breakfast. Do you, do you think of God that immediate and near that he actually cares about a particular meal of the day? Can you just imagine what it smells like when Jesus cooks you breakfast? You, you see, you're supposed to. You're supposed to imagine. I wonder what it would be like for Jesus to draw me near. Because you see, that's conversion. When you realize that Jesus wants to be with you, to have fellowship with you, not to know about you, not for you to know about him. He wants to be in your life, every aspect, even in your breakfast. It's not just a bunch of cursory words. God, we thank you for this food. Amen. No, 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 no. He wants you to enjoy life with his joy. Come and have breakfast, boys. Ah. I challenge you to find any other faith construct or religion that has a sovereign deity that has this much immediate concern for individual people. It's astonishing. Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him. <laughs> See, peer pressure is a thing back then, too. Who are you? They all knew that it was the Lord. I'm not going to ask him. You can ask him. No, Daryl, shut up. You shut up, Daryl. They'd know that it's Jesus. Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. It's beautiful. On this same exact seashore, Jesus, way back in John chapter 6, had fed thousands and thousands of people miraculously with bread and fish. What is Jesus saying? I'm also going to supply and fill and feed and equip and nourish and energize you because that's what Jesus does with the disciples. He always provides the means. He gives them fish and he gives them bread just like he had done the masses 
on the Sea of Galilee. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. In other words, it is historical fact. The third time. Jesus would appear to more than 500 people. 500 different eyewitnesses after the resurrection. It is historical fact. Now then, we get very personal as to the reason why John includes this epilogue at the end of his gospel. Finally, John chapter 21 and in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Jesus is about to make the saddest thing that's ever happened, where Peter said, May God darn me to heck if I'm lying. The saddest thing ever, Jesus is about to make it come untrue. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, he doesn't call him Peter because he's not very rock-like right now, is he? He's a shell of regret and fear, uncertainty, doubt, frustration, just resentment at his own self. He calls him Simon, son of John. Do you love me? And then he says, do you love me more than these? Not do you love me more than you love these other disciples. No, 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 no. Do you love me more than they love me? Because that was your boast. That was your bravado. That was your claim back in John 13. Lord, when all of these losers fall away, I never will because I'm Captain Awesome. They're all going to fall. They're all going to fail, but not me. I'll be with you even unto death. Unless, of course, there's a diminutive little servant girl and then she will totally undo me. But other than that, and his bravado, his machismo, his arrogance turns into the greatest failure in human history. Peter, do you love me more than these? And you can just feel the thumb on the soul nerve of Peter. Jesus has to wound him to eradicate and obliterate any pride, any self-strength, any arrogance that he still has before he can be useful. Simon, the son of John, he says, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. I think it's super gracious. Jesus will call him Simon, son of John, three times, but John will always call him Peter. There's a little bit of a healthy rivalry and, and I don't know, um, competition between Peter and John throughout this gospel. But in the book of Acts, it is Peter and John that will go out and begin all the preaching, and Peter always leads. And I think John has an incredible affection and a respect and a support of Peter. He will always call him Peter despite all of the messes. That's good friending right there. To call them according to how they could be and how God sees them. Well, verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And because there were three denials to make Peter so sad, there's going to be three questions to undo this saddest thing ever, ever. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, I need to get a little bit geeky and greeky here. Perhaps you've heard that Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you agape me? 
And Peter can't quite bring himself to answer with that word. And so there's three words for love in Greek. Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The idea has been, Jesus says, do you love me with the self-sacrificial love of God? And Peter says, you know that I'm really, really fond of you. I like you a lot, Jesus. And he asks him that two times. But on the third time, Jesus steps it down and says, Peter, do you at least phileo me? And Peter says, you know that I phileo you. And let me just tell you, I love exposition like that, particularly when it comes to languages. The problem is that holds absolutely no water. Those words are all synonyms. John is a literary master, and he loves to employ synonyms in his gospel, in his three epistles, and in the book of Revelation. Those words are effectively synonymous. I know that they can have slightly nuanced meaning, but they are basically synonymous. We hear over and over in the Gospel of John that the Father phileo the Son, and the Son phileo the Father. We'll also hear that the Father agape the Son, and the Son agape the Father, but they're used interchangeably. It can't mean that on some days, God the Father really self-sacrificially loves the Son, but on other days, He's just kind of fond of Him. Of course it can't mean that. It's a stylistic way that John tells this story. And in fact, Jesus and Peter would have been speaking Aramaic. And there's only one word. So this is just John being stylistic in his narration. We don't want to try to make too much of the fact that it's agape versus phileo. Or that he says, tend my sheep or feed my lambs. That there's some sort of progression there. No. It's an eyewitness historical account of what takes place. If we try to make it say more than it says, then we run the risk of invalidating all of it. Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus takes his time in restoring him, but restore him he does. He makes the saddest thing ever come completely untrue with three stinging questions. And then Jesus sort of drops a hammer on Peter in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and Walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus is predicting the way in which Peter is going to die. Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion when you're old. In other words, it's not anytime soon. You get to walk through life knowing that. And Peter, I want you to recall that I am worth it because I am removing that burden of regret from you. We know from church historians like Eusebius and many others that Peter, in fact, was crucified in Rome at the hands of Nero. But at his own request, he did not want to be crucified like his Lord Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down, and they obliged. And that is how Peter met his death. But this is such an important epilogue to the entire Gospel of John. You may or may not recall, way back in chapter 13 and in chapter 15, we talked about this, where Jesus goes to wash the disciples' feet in chapter 13, and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And it's Peter that says, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, you have to let me. Well, then not just my feet, but my head and my hands and everything. And Jesus says, nope, just your feet. Because you acknowledging that I need to wash your feet, is the sign that you are clean already. Peter, I'm going to get you through. In 15, 
You must be pruned, and you are pruned already. It's the same word. And so we come to the epilogue. Peter is never going to become who he already is unless this event occurs. This epilogue is not merely an afterthought. It is John saying, do you see how good Jesus is? He said, this is who you are already. Become who you are already. And this is the length to which Jesus will go to restore even Peter and the greatest failure ever because there is no failure too far. So that Peter can become who he already is in God's sight. Look what Jesus will do to make that happen. And yes, Peter, it's going to be a hard 30 years before you die. But I'm worth it. Well, verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's the marching orders, Peter. Follow me. Go where I go. Do what I do, say what I say, love whom I love, equip the disciples that I will equip. Follow me, Peter. You'd think that'd be pretty clear. Just one little imperative, follow me, right. Verse 20, it's been said of Peter that he could mess up a one-car funeral. Well, here we go. Chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. So apparently, Jesus and Peter are taking a little stroll away from the campfire, and John is following in a distance. And Peter goes, huh, crucifixion, huh? I've seen those. That's not cool. What about that guy? How's he going to go? Got to love that. Even 2,000 years ago, the age-old church practice of discipleship measurement. Like, you know, this guy, I'm doing this, but how's that guy doing? Mm, comparison, marvelous. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, you know, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus says to him, you ninny. No, he didn't actually say that, but there's a stinging rebuke that it's kind of like that. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't miss the point, Peter. You follow me, but also don't miss in there. Until I come, Jesus reaffirms that he's coming back. There was an error in John's day that thought, well, maybe he's not coming back. Oh, no, John includes this to make sure that we know from Jesus' own mouth that he is coming again. So the saying spread among the, the brothers that this disciple was not to die Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Apparently, church people were weird then too, and some crazy rumor got started that John never died. And there's horrible 20th century fiction that John was in the Vietnam War. Don't read it, it's garbage, okay? (laughs) But even then, people were weird about this kind of stuff. John says, no, that's not his point, just that he is sovereign, and it's none of Peter's business. Peter's business is to follow Jesus. That's good instructions right there. And then in verse 24, we have an interesting change. We think that probably what happens is that in Ephesus, John hands the pen to a disciple, probably Timothy. We don't know for sure, but more than likely Timothy. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. What we think is that at this point, Timothy and the eldership of Ephesus validates, confirms, and acknowledges the veracity and the legitimacy of all of John's gospel. And so Timothy and the elders of Ephesus sign off in verse 24. Verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
the Gospel of John. That last verse might seem like it's a bit of an exaggeration, but it isn't. John merely records some content to help organize his idea so that we will believe. But all of the other things that Jesus does and said, if those were to be recorded and analyzed, it would fill up libraries of libraries because he is infinite God and our finite minds can't quite wrap around the enormity of who he is and what he has done. So as we come to the end of John 21, I really only have one application point. And it's our big idea for the morning. There is no failure too far. Again, I don't know what comes up in your mind that might disqualify you from service, from kingdom um, impact. Yes, there are certain things that will disqualify us from certain aspects of ministry. If you, like Peter, fish naked, you're not going to work in our children's ministry. I'm just going to tell you, you're not, you're, there's not a space for you. But listen, there is no disqualification from the kingdom of God. Sin is a really big deal, but it is no match for God's grace. There is no failure too far, nor is there a failure too far for those people that you might be thinking about right now. Your loved ones, children, spouses, parents, neighbors, coworkers, who you think, man, they have made such a flaming wreckage of their life trajectory. Their failure is too far. Oh no, it is not. Look at Moses, look at David, look at Saul of Tarsus, look at Peter. There is no failure too far. And in that, we have great, great hope. Now, if you'll oblige me for just a few moments, I have sat with the Gospel of John since September of 2018. And I will tell you, transparently and candidly, it has changed me. I have taught some passages in John, but I've never had the privilege to preach straight through. And so as I've sat with this gospel, there are three things that really, I think, just uh, emerged in me that I now think differently as a result of our time together. And I hope and pray that there's been some things like that for you as well. I just want to share with you mine. If you have some thoughts or learnings from John, I'd love to hear those or share them with your life group or your family. But just a couple from me. Number one goes like this. Jesus is sovereign in salvation. Now, I know that we sort of know that because Jesus is God and he's strong and shiny and bright and all of those things, but I mean, no, really. From the first moment of creation, all the way through being announced as the Logos, to changing water into wine and cleansing the temple and having a conversation with Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman at a well and healing a paralyzed guy and feeding thousands on a seashore and declaring himself as the light of the world at the Feast of Tabernacles to healing a blind guy. All of those things, he is always in complete and total control. He is never once caught on his heels. Why? Because he is mighty to save. And every aspect, even that which led to his suffering, his shame, and his own death, he was in complete control of because he is deeply involved in the lives of people. Not just the world on the whole, but individual lives that he has crafted. We are his poema, Ephesians says, his handiwork, his poetry, his artistry. Individually, he is sovereign in salvation and he pursues you and me, as C.S. Lewis says, as the hound of heaven. Not a people group, but people. He is sovereign in salvation. Think rightly about this Jesus. He is not distant. He is not disinterested. 
Look at the lengths to which he went to accomplish, to prepare a place for disciples. Number two, Jesus is for me. Now let me clarify. I don't mean that he's solely for my benefit. I don't mean that, but I mean, listen, he's for me. He's actually in my corner. It's not even my corner. But he actually wants my good more than I want my good. Ray Steadman, one of my heroes in the faith, said his entire life and ministry changed overnight when he finally believed and rested that God was actually for him. Not displeased, not angry, not disappointed, not disinterested, but for him, wanting him to enjoy this life abundantly with the joy of Jesus. He's for you. And sometimes it might sting the things that he leads us through, but he is for you. I am increasingly aware because of this study in John that he is for me. Which brings me to point number three, that Jesus loves me. There's a song in there somewhere, they should write that down, but that Jesus actually loves me. Jesus does not tolerate me. Jesus does not just put up with me. He loves me (laughs) more than I love my son, more than I love my wife, more than I love my parents, more than I love you. Jesus loves me. Look what he did. Despite of all the mounting evidence I have supplied as to why he should not love me. All of the reasons I have to regret, and he loves me. I pray that ever increasingly as I walk through this life, every single day I will simply but believe that more. And I pray that for you as well. I pray that God has spoken to you by his spirit among his people through his word, through the gospel of John. And I pray that if you're here this morning, and you do not believe. Well, I invite you to believe. That is John's hope and prayer. That is Jesus' hope and expectation. And it is my invitation that you would simply believe. Against all your ability to explain it and understand it with your academic faculties, that you just believe it. That he really is the Son of God. He did what he said he was going to do. And that you would live your whole life with all of your weight placed firmly on that truth. Not hedging your bets. You look foolish doing this. All of your being squarely centered on the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the great story and the awesome announcement. He's done it. It's finished. He accomplished it. He prepared a place. He redeemed fallen humanity to himself and to one another, and he makes the sad things come untrue. What if you allowed your heart to believe that? And for the rest of us who have been believers for quite some time, but we're still trying to manage Jesus, he'll have none of it. But he is sovereign in salvation. He is for you and he loves you. And following Jesus is our mandate, it is our purvey, it is our privilege, it is our prerogative. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. In fact, it won't be fun a lot of the time. It'll almost certainly include suffering. But guess what? There's a bunch of disciples in the boat. And he knows your names. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for the gospel of John, that it is good news. We thank you for the presentation of truth. And I pray, God, that we will ever increasingly stand 
in the center of this truth and that you will lead us forward and give us courage and wisdom to follow your son, Jesus. Father, if there's one this morning that does not know you, I do pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and that you will lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. They would step, as John's gospel portrays, out of night into day, out of darkness into light, that the sun would rise in their hearts. And for the rest of us, Father, may we ever increasingly believe that you love us, that you are for us, and you make all of the sad things come untrue, and we would not in any way be restrained by our regret that you would release us. So, Father, I pray that it'll be exactly as I have prayed, or even better, because you are good and we can trust you. And we pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks again for being with us. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now may the Lord bless you, may he keep you, may he cause his face to shine upon you, and may you reflect it as his disciples. God bless you, are dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.